Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 17th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 41, verses 1 to 26. Ezekiel's vision of a new temple continues. He sees the temple itself. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor Wolfmuller serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Great to be here. Pastor Wolfmuller, in Dr. Hummel's commentary in the book of Ezekiel, when he's commenting on this section, chapters 40 through 48, he begins with this. He says, from almost any perspective, these chapters are among the most formidable and challenging in the entire Bible. So with that in mind, do you, do you agree with Dr. Hummel? <laughs> and, and if that is the case, what are we going to do with chapters like this? How do, we, how do we make heads and tails of this as Christians? Well, it's, I, it's good that it, it points us back to the theology of the temple. I think that's going to be what the main takeaway here is, because I, I think like this section, it, it seemed to me like Re- the book of Revelation itself, where if you start to try to to sort out all the particulars of all the details, or if you start to take all the numbers and the um, the dimensions that are given here as um, symbolic features that are supposed to teach us, but it's not interpreted for us, then you, you have a riddle basically that is unsolvable. But if we're able to take a look at maybe this, the role of the temple in and the tabernacle before it in the piety of the Lord's people, then we can start to put this together. We can, for example, remember that Ezekiel was the prophet at the time of the exile. So he was taken away before the temple was destroyed, but he was in Babylon when the temple is destroyed and he hears of that destruction. That would be the Temple of Solomon constructed in 971 or so BC, uh, the temple that David wanted to build, but the Lord took that privilege away from David and gave it to his son Solomon. And so that temple stood from, from 971 to 586. We know that later when the people go back from captivity under Zerubbabel, that they'll build another temple and the people see that temple that was built and they mourn, especially those who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple. We'll consider how maybe the the temple of Zerubbabel was remodeled under Herod the Great, Herod the Builder. And that's the temple that the angel, that the devil took Jesus to the top of and said, throw yourself down, the angels will catch you. And that temple was destroyed August 10th and 70 AD. But in the middle of these earthly temples that are built, the Lord gives Ezekiel this vision of a new temple, a glorious temple that is beyond the imagination even of Solomon or of Herod. And this temple comes back in the book of Revelation when the New Jerusalem is described in very similar language to this temple, and it comes down from heaven, and heaven and earth are joined together. And so this sort of span of the temples that the Lord had overseen, both their building and their destruction, is meant to teach us something. And in fact, it's meant to teach us a lot of things. It was a preaching, a building. 
And, and so I think if we can understand that background, then this vision starts to come to us with more benefit and more blessings. What are some of those things that the temple, the tabernacle, that are, it's meant to teach us that will help us, particularly what we've got in chapter 41? Well, maybe this verse in, um, in Exodus chapter 20 is most helpful. When the Lord has given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai to Moses, and, and he's about to go into the, destruct, into, the destruct, into the instructions for worship, and, and he says, where I cause my name to be remembered, there I will come to you, and there I will bless you. Now, that's pretty important that the Lord promises to come to us to bless us. And that's very different than the Lord coming to us to destroy us, because that's the real risk. The Lord is holy, and we are not. We are sinners. We've broken God's commandments. We, like, um, like the Lord warned Moses and the people, if anyone touches the mountain, they can be destroyed. The Lord's holiness is dangerous to us. And so if the Lord is going to come to us and not destroy us, he has to hide himself. And that is the, the real blessing of the divine service in the Old Testament, that the Lord has instituted a way to be present with his people and not destroy them, and, and not uh, wallop them, and not just undissolve them because of their sinfulness. And that way is the tabernacle. So that the Lord, the tabernacle really is the Lord hiding himself so that he can bless. And this is the, the whole deal with the, uh, the priesthood, all the vestments, all the services, and most especially all the sacrifices. So that nobody is appearing before the Lord apart from the blood of the sacrifice. The New Testament tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. But then what does it do? We understand that that blood of bulls and goats, all those sacrifices, didn't take away sin, but rather it preached the death of the one whose blood would take away sins. So every, every bull, every goat, every lamb that was sacrificed on Jewish altars, all of that, that was preaching the coming sacrifice of the Son of God. And that's the real business of the tabernacle and the temple, is to preach the coming death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, and, and I think this is really quite wonderful, when the Lord gives instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle on top of Mount Sinai, he says, Build according to what you see. So, so that the tabernacle is, according to Hebrews, an earthly shadow of the heavenly reality. And think about it this way. There's a lot of parallels. But, but think about this. There's a throne. We know that there's a throne in heaven where the Lord sits. And so in the tabernacle, there's a throne, a mercy seat. And we know that around the throne of God in heaven, there's the four living creatures, these winged creatures flying around. And so now down in the tabernacle, there's two angels that sit on top of the mercy seat and two angels that are woven into the curtain. In heaven, the, the prayers of the Lord's people rise before his throne. And in the tabernacle, the incense comes from the holy place through the curtain into the holy of holies and surrounds that, and surrounds that uh, mercy seat. And we know that the the Lord Jesus himself is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, testifying for us, praying for us, pleading for us, bringing his blood there. And so when we see the high priest carry the blood from the sacrifice outside into the holy place and put it on the altar, we see a picture of the exact thing that Jesus does in his ascension. And so the 
temple and the tabernacle are are preaching the heavenly reality, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners. And that's why it's so important for us to consider these texts. And that's why it's so important for the Lord to give the people in exile the hope that he has not abandoned the preaching of the tabernacle, the preaching of the temple, that just because it's destroyed doesn't mean now the Lord's mercy is unattainable. So, Pastor Wolf Miller, and uh, you cut out a little bit there at the the very end of your answer, just because the tabernacle is destroyed, and I didn't catch everything you said. Oh, after sure. That. Yeah, just because it's destroyed doesn't mean that God's mercy is unattainable. In fact, really, this is the the, the kind of the burden of Ezekiel itself it, it, from the very beginning, when when Ezekiel sees the Lord in His glory with the whirling wheels. It says it's like um. The Lord is able to take the mercy show on the road. He, he's in a mobile home. He can get to where you are. If you're far from Jerusalem, it doesn't matter. The Lord can come and find you. And so now, as the as the temple is being, and I can't remember exactly in the chronology if the temple now has been destroyed or if he's got that report yet or not yet. But as the temple in Jerusalem is being destroyed, the Lord is confirming to Ezekiel and to the people who he ministers to that the that the mercy that the temple provides is still available to them. This is after Ezekiel has received the report of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He, he received that report in chapter 33, and at the beginning of chapter 40, where this section starts, it's the 25th year of their exile. So it's it's been a while now since the temple has been destroyed. I appreciate what you said about you know the Lord what is it, taking his mercy show on the road, and the, the mobility of the Lord's mercy, which I think, you know, I mean, you go all the way back to Ezekiel 1, where he sees that vision of the glory of the Lord enthroned on those four living creatures, the cherubim, and the glory of the Lord's moving all around, which, you know, what, what comfort that is to people in exile, no doubt. It, it, straight, it strikes me a little bit that with, with Ezekiel and the vision of the temple, and then in the context of everything you've got here, this mobility of the Lord is almost a, a return to the tabernacle in the sense of the mobility. I remember when we talked about this on Sharper Iron, we were looking at the book of Exodus and the description of the tabernacle. Several of our guests made this point that the Lord, through the tabernacle, allowed for you know his glory to travel with the people. And with the temple being a building, as Solomon, you know, you're, the Lord's not stuck, but but he puts himself there in that place. And now it's almost like a return to that and all of this, I think, is pointing us forward to the way St. John writes about the Word becoming flesh and and literally tabernacling among us. Again, trying to draw those dots between what we've got in the Old Testament and how it's pointing forward to Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And and when we see the new heaven and the new earth, the, the Jerusalem, the square city, which is in a lot of ways very similar to this new temple that's being described in these chapters— when we see that, it's coming down from heaven and joining the earth. So even this most glorious structure, I mean, the size of the structure that Ezekiel is seeing here and that's being measured by the angels is immense. It's massive. It's so much bigger than even the Herod's temple. It's a city. I mean, it's, it's a bigger than a city. And and But when we see that that immense structure is like floating down like a cube from the sky and joining earth, it's a picture of, of these two things, the immovability of the Lord and his promises, 
and yet the fact that he can get to where we are. And all of those truths come uh, very profoundly, like you said, in the Incarnation. Because there, Jesus is present to bless. He's present to save. He's present to deliver. Jesus is the, the, the tabernacle of God. So, um, so that Jesus meets the Samaritan woman, and she has this question. We worship here on this mountain. You say we should worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, no, not, it's not, no longer a question of where. Those who worship the Father worship in spirit and in truth. So wherever Jesus is, there his church is, his body is, his blessings are. So Jesus can say, go into the, all nations. There's a scattering sense to the New Testament church. There's a gathering to Jerusalem in the Old Testament, but there's a real scattering of the church because it doesn't know it doesn't matter how far we go. The Lord is with us; He never leaves us or forsakes us. We're not no longer orphans. So, even to the ends of the earth, even to even to into into far off Texas, the Lord comes to bless and and to deliver. It's amazing how um, how where His word is and the name of Jesus is there. The Lord is to save. In terms of where we are in Ezekiel and his vision, what's he seen so far? What's been the general movement that Ezekiel's getting in this tour of this new temple? Sure. So we had in chapter 40, uh, we have this, this beginning of this temple, um, the, the ideal picture of the restored uh, temple. And so that's had started already in the previous chapter. It's going to hone in. Um, it's going to kind of circle back around and get into more details. And so chapter 41 is going to deal with the chambers and the ornaments of the temple, the side walls and things like this, and the Holy of Holies even. Um, and this is going to continue in chapter 42, the priestly chamber, all the measurements of the temple. And then in chapter three, the glory of the Lord will come and appear in the temple. And so it's a, in some ways it's a, it's a redoing of uh, of the end of the book of Exodus, where all the tabernacle is is constructed, and then the Lord comes to dwell. So now all this temple is toured, and then the Lord's presence comes to dwell in it. Well, and even within the book of Ezekiel, toward the beginning of his book in chapters 8 through 11, he sees the glory of the Lord leaving the temple by stages because of you know all of the, the idolatry that was happening among the people. And now the, the reverse of that, I think, is as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this is always, um, you know, it's the, it's the law and the gospel of, right. of the Lord's presence. So is the Lord looking towards us or away from us? Is it? Is it light or dark? Is the glory present or is the glory absent? And um, you know, that's that, I suppose in some ways that's always the problem with the with the face of Moses because it's always by degrees in this way. But here we're in a very mm, we're built we're in a building up stage, not in a tearing down stage. Right, right. Let's go ahead and read here in Ezekiel forty one. We're starting with the first verse. Then he brought me to the nave and measured the jams. On each side, six cubits was the breadth of the jams, and the breadth of the entrance was ten cubits, and the side walls of the entrance were five cubits on either side. And he measured the length of the nave, forty cubits, and its breadth, twenty cubits. Then he went into the inner room and measured the jams of the entrance, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits, and the side walls on either side of the entrance, seven cubits. And he measured the length of the room, twenty cubits, and its breadth, twenty cubits, across the nave. 
And he said to me, This is the most holy place. Then he measured the wall of the temple, six cubits thick, and the breadth of the side chambers, four cubits, all around the temple. And the side chambers were in three stories, one over another, thirty in each story. There were offsets all around the walls of the temple to serve as supports for the side chambers, so that they should not be supported by the wall of the temple. And it became broader as it wound upward to the side chambers, because the temple was enclosed upward all around the temple. Thus the temple had a broad area upward, and so one went up from the lowest story to the top story through the middle story. I saw also that the temple had a raised platform all around. The foundations of the side chambers measured a full reed of six long cubits. The thickness of the outer wall of the side chambers was five cubits. The free space between the side chambers of the temple and the other chambers was a breadth of twenty cubits all around the temple on every side. And the doors of the side chambers opened on the free space, one door toward the north and another door toward the south. And the breadth of the free space was five cubits all around. The building that was facing the separate yard on the west side was 70 cubits broad, and the wall of the building was five cubits thick all around, and its length 90 cubits. All right, that takes us through verse 12. I'll pause there. Pastor Wolfmuller, one of the, the challenges, we talked a little bit about this with the previous show, one of the challenges of this, this even without any of the, the theology that's there, is just trying to picture this in your mind because yeah. you've got written words on a page and you and I are just talking. We, we can't see each other or draw each other a picture. Can you help us to, to picture what Ezekiel is seeing here? Yeah, it's it's tricky. Uh, I've got a, a, a couple images of it that are pulled up that are on, I think you can find it online on some of my Bible software. It has some of these comparison images where they've tried to sort of do an artist rendering of the, 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 the temple here. And I, so I, I'm looking at one now, and I, let me try to describe it to you. So one of the differences is that the whole uh, temple complex is a perfect square, and there's an outer wall, and then almost directly in the middle of that wall, of the whole temple complex, is the altar. And it's on a raised platform that's a square, and then on the western side of that, so if you're looking at it, just maybe imagine it to the left, is the temple itself. But then in front of that, right in front of the temple, uh, to the east of the altar, to the right of the altar, and north of the altar and south of the altar, are these very tall, thin, square buildings that sort of form a, a gateway into that altar area. So a really fancy, tall, um, rectangular gate that enters into the altar area. And there's similar gates all the way on the edge. So you have these um, one, two huge, tall, rectangular passageways to enter into the temple from the east, right in the middle of the wall, from the north, right in the middle of the wall, from the south, right in the middle of the wall, and then you come into the inner area, and then there's similar gateways as well. So the the major features of the whole temple complex are these gateways coming from every direction. And then on the west side is the temple proper with some, like all these chambers, three stories of like apartments on the north and the south side of the temple. And then the temple itself is this tall rectangular structure. I, I, I'm not sure if that helps. Does that paint the picture a bit? 
It does help. It's and again, it's it's hard to to picture without something in front of you. In the Lutheran Study Bible, there is a, a nice picture. I've referenced this before, and it's it's two D. I wish it was was three D, but it's on page one one thousand three hundred seventy nine. The Lutheran Study Bible gives a, a possibility of what this looks like. What we've got in our text today is the temple proper, and so if I if I'm reading this right. And it, it doesn't always use the same terminology that maybe we're as familiar with, with the tabernacle and the temple that we get in Exodus and in, in Kings. But it, it sounds like in verses one through four, we're talking about at least what I always talked about is the holy place and the most holy place. Is that mm-hmm. what's there in those first mm-hmm. four verses? Yeah, exactly. The, so the sanctuary itself, and then what is not 100% clear, and I just don't think this is clear in the text, although it just, it could be my reading of it, like you said, in the, whenever we talk about the tabernacle and then the temple that Solomon builds, there's a real clear, so you have the temple building itself or the tabernacle and it's divided into two parts. So you have the holy place. That's kind of the outward room where there's the incense altar, the showbread, the candelabra, the priest would minister there in the holy place every day. But then there's the veil that goes into the most holy place and in the most holy place, it's just the Ark of the Covenant together with the cherubim. And um, the priest would only go in there twice a year on the same day, on the Day of Atonement, two trips in the same room. And and so you have that clear distinction between the holy place and the most holy place. I'm not sure that that, that same distinction holds in this temple. It seems like this most holy place might refer to the whole temple. Uh, build the inner rooms itself. Um, but I, but again, I'm not 100% sure if I'm reading it right, but that was how I read it, is that it doesn't have that same, it doesn't have that same distinction. The only the only thing that I, I wonder, maybe I, I am seeing a distinction here, is in verse 1, you get that familiar phrase that we've seen, he brought me. So the, his, his tour guide, Ezekiel's tour guide, brought him into, in the way the ESV translates it, is the nave. And it describes the nave, and that's where I would take, okay, this is the the holy place. But then in verse 3, it doesn't say he brought me. It says he went into, and again, the ESV translates it, the inner room. And and this is where I, I wonder, and again, I, I agree, it might not be the clearest, but the fact that only the tour guide appears to go into that inner room, and Ezekiel doesn't seem to go in there with him, it makes me wonder that it seems like they're, I don't know. It's maybe it's not the same sort of very clear distinction that you get in the tabernacle, and then the way that it's get it gets used in Leviticus, and the same for the temple. Yeah. But I, I see at least a little bit there. Yep. Yep. It could. You. I think you could be right about that. So, and and that's a. It's a. It's a really interesting. It's perhaps the most interesting part of the of the temple because there's this veil that's there, and that's the veil that was torn when Jesus died on, on the. Um, on the cross and that that way into the presence of God being opened by the death of Jesus is there and that's a that's a really um, Pastor Apple that's a really nice uh, um, distinction that you got there he brought me in but then he went inside so the angel is like the priest that can go into the presence of God Ezekiel not yet 
So in terms of the, the most holy place and the holy place and what Ezekiel's seeing, again, help us with some of the, the theology. So that's one of the ways we're going to get a handle on this. What, and you think about these things in the Old Testament, you've already started to bring it into the, the New Testament when the curtain gets torn. What's the theology of these two parts of the temple and what Ezekiel sees here and how we would take it as Christians? Sure. Well, we'll remember that the way that you depict the throne of your God is pretty important. So this is the deal with the golden calves in the Old Testament, where Baal would sit on these big bulls. And if you're sitting on a big bull, that is going to indicate what you're up to. You're coming with strength and power to destroy. But the Lord, when he crafts his chair, he calls it a mercy seat, the hilasterion, the, the place of propitiation, so that so that the Lord sits on a throne, but it's on a throne of mercy, of justice, but but most especially of justification, of declaring us to be righteous, of receiving the sacrifice of the blood and declaring us to be holy. And so, so that place, that most holy place is most holy, not just because the Holy One sits there, but because the Holy One who sits there declares us to be holy also. So how does how does that then come to us as Christians today? Hmm. Well, it, um, it it probably the there's a reflection a threefold reflection of this reality. Well, a twofold reflection. Let's say it like this. So so the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a shadow of the heavenly reality. The heavenly reality is that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world is right now before the throne of God presenting his blood as the price for our salvation. So Hebrews talks about how he went, we have an anchor beyond the veil that Jesus carried into the holy place, not made with hands, his own blood. So that at this very moment, Timothy, uh, uh, our Lord Jesus is presenting for us his sacrifice his blood he's interceding for us and the father is receiving that and declaring us to be to be right and and holy and good and that is reflected now not in the tabernacle that old testament tabernacle doesn't exist anymore but it's reflected for us in the divine service so when we come to the to the altar when we come to the lord's supper when we come to the lord's word it's almost like we're going to court and the very first thing that happens in, in the court is you make a plea and you say, are, are you innocent or guilty? And so we all gather together before the Lord's presence and we say, we're guilty. We're guilty of, of breaking God's commandments. We're guilty of living, uh, uh, chasing after our own desires instead of serving the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, my response to your guilt is, is Jesus. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's mercy and kindness and love. And, and, and so we confess our sins and we hear the absolution and that continues so that the the liturgy of the church is in a really profound way an echo of the heavenly reality just as jesus stands before the father testifying to our innocence so the pastor stands before me and you and testifies of our forgiveness and then there's another echo of this heavenly reality that's in our own conscience in our heart so jesus says i will send you another helper or comforter or advocate the, the greek word is paraclete that means a defense 
the, the one who stands next to us in court and defends us, a defense attorney. And Jesus says, I'll give you another advocate because he is our advocate before the heavenly throne. And now he comes down to us in our own heart and conscience and testifies to us of the blood of Jesus and his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And so the heavenly reality of Jesus before the throne is reflected in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. And it's reflected in the divine service and the comforted conscience of the New Testament. And here in this vision, it's reflected for us in this vision of the of the tabernacle or of the of this magnificent temple itself as a picture of of the New Testament church and a foretaste of the resurrection when the Lord will dwell with his people, uh, not according to his wrath, but according to his kindness and his love. That is the blessed vision that Ezekiel is seeing here in Ezekiel chapter 41, and we'll pick up more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller this morning, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, November 17th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 41, verses 1 to 26, with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, prior to the break, we were talking about the first four verses, the holy place, the most holy place, the temple proper. In verses 5 and following, Ezekiel starts to describe some rooms around. There's three stories worth of rooms, and there's like 30 rooms in each story. What what are we seeing here? How about this? I'll give you a line from the commentary here. It says this. The purpose of these 90 side rooms is not specified. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's um, although here. So um, there's a couple of interesting things, because when we read through the history of the Old Testament, we find there was all sorts of weird things happening in the storage rooms around the temple. For, for example, on the good side of things, that's where the scroll of the law was discovered by like Hezekiah and Josiah in their reforms. They found that they had like taken the, the scrolls of the prophets and stuffed them away in storage. And then someone found them and they read them and they're like, what? We need to have the Passover. What are we doing? And so they were sort of working as storage rooms. This is where... Um, some of the immorality of the priests would happen. And so that's discussed in a few places. It's also where some of the pagan gods would be placed, or especially when um, the the kings were very wicked and they were putting up pagan things in the temple and they were taking the things of the Lord and putting them in these storage rooms. Uh, but there's a place in here, a little line I was looking at. We'll, we'll, I think we'll probably come across it 
a little later where it says it was holy to the Lord. In other words, all, every little square inch of this place of the whole temple complex belongs to the Lord. And so none of it is going to be useless, nor is any of it going to be defiled or used for wicked purposes. That, that, that sounds good to me. I mean, I, you know, like you said, we're not sure on, on a lot of these and what's going on here. What about, and this, you're probably going to have a very similar answer, I think, but in verse 12, we've got a building that's not part of the temple proper itself, a little bit farther removed, this building on the west side. What, any, any thoughts on what that is? Um, here's another line from the commentary. I love it. Fantastic. Other than its size, no other details on the building are given. <laughs> In other words, you could uh, we might be able to guess, but what's it's interesting that the there's access to the temple from the east, the north, and the south. There's these two gates, the first big gate structure to come into the outer court, and then the other gate structures come into the inner court. Uh, there is this might this building is seems like it's on the edge. It might be something like an entrance, a Western entrance, but it's not indicated that there's any sort of gate access there. So you're coming into these three other gates and you are heading in this direction. So, so this is the place that you're, that you're going. Pastor Wolf, you know, maybe a question that's a little more broad in nature than with some of these details, you know, the, the specifications that are given the measurements for this temple are very exact. And that's true of the tabernacle. It's true of the temple as well in, in Exodus and Kings. Now, when you look at Christian sanctuaries today, I mean, for example, if, if you compare your sanctuary there at St. Paul to Grace here in Smithville or, or Jesus Death there in, in Austin as well, that you're going to look at three different sanctuaries. What, I mean, how do we take the exactness that's given here why is this exactness so important right now, and how does that transfer into Christian worship, Christian architecture still today, even with our differences? Sure. Well, that's a good question. So the um, the exactness in these visions, I always think, refers to. Well, let me uh, let me give you an example. When we look at the Book of Revelation, so coming up pretty soon, Revelation seven the picture of the saints, the, the heavenly armies. And we have it described to us in two ways. The first is the description of the 144,000. No more, no less. Perfect. And that 144,000 is made up of 12,000 from 12 tribes. Just perfect. Not a single one missing. It's not like there's 12 tribes of 12,000 and then, or 11 tribes, and then the 12th tribe has 11,999. Or 12,000 and what? No, it's just the perfect number. So I hear the number, says St. John, of all those who are part of this army of the Lord of hosts. And then he said, I looked and I saw an uncountable multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And these are two ways of describing the same reality. According to the Lord's vision, according to the Lord's eyes, he sees his church as perfectly ordered and arranged in every way. It's almost like the perspective of election and predestination says that the number is full, just as many as the Lord wants. But from our perspective, it just looks like chaos. It's an uncountable multitude. And so the exactitude or the precision 
is an indication of the Lord's design, intent, and creation of his, of his people, of his kingdom. And I think that something is happening like that here in the description, in this really precise description of this new and glorious temple in Ezekiel. It's just exactly how the Lord wants it. There's no mountains to work around. There's no limitations on geography. It's perfectly square and flat in every way. It's not an inch off. It's perfectly level, just as the Lord intends it. And so this, this precision is to give us confidence that the Lord is working, even though, even though we don't see it. Now, how does that come into the, into the New Testament? I mean, how, we, we do not use an exact measurement to make sure all of our, our churches or our sanctuaries are the same. In fact, we rejoice in all the differences. And I think that's right because, uh, because what the Lord has uh, built here in his heavenly kingdom is, a, is perfect from his side, but from our side, it always looks different. So the Lord gives to different congregations in different places, different gifts, different resources, different things. And I think it's good and right that our sanctuaries reflect these uniquenesses and these differences. We know that when the Lord looks at us, he doesn't, he, he sees it just as it's supposed to be, purified and perfected by the blood of Jesus. And that's our confidence as we, as we do our best to have beautiful places to hear the Lord's word. Our confidence is that the Lord, no matter how humble our, our, our sanctuaries are, the Lord comes to bless it. And that's the, the true beauty and the true adornment. I think that's a fantastic answer. I mean, I'm reminded of when, for example, a conversation I've had about Exodus chapter 3, where the Lord tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Well, what makes that holy ground? It's the fact that that's where the Lord is speaking to his servant Moses. It's not that the the burning bush in and of itself was somehow holier than than the bush next to it, but that's where the Lord was. And and wherever the Lord is, you know, wh- whether his his body and blood is is received out of a vessel made of the finest metals uh, or or whether that that body and blood is received out of something like a plastic cup, when it's the Lord's body and blood that you're receiving, you are standing on holy ground. And, and as you said, certainly we, we seek to adorn these things with the best that we have because of the precious nature. But what makes them precious in our, in, you know, among us isn't that vessel. It's not the building itself, but it's the Lord's promise. And, and to see the, the perfection, the exactness here, I think, you know, informs us when, when maybe, you know, what we look at doesn't seem so beautiful. We know what the Lord is seeing, and there should be great comfort in that. Yeah. The true beauty of the church is the Word of God. That's the true adornment. It reminds me of um, Luther's words in the large catechism. And he, he would talk about how the kind of silliness with which the we're tempted to try to adorn the church. He says the true beauty is nothing other than God's Word. And this is our confidence. He calls it God's Word is the, is the holy thing of holy things. And, and that's in contrast to the ancient practice of relics, hey, that's a good thing to talk about, uh, coming off the heels of All Saints Days, uh, All Saints Day, when they would, in the Wittenberg Church, they would have all these relics gathered up together. And if you go and you see the relic, it was supposed to sort of um, share some power of sanctification with you. And Luther says, that's silly. The thing that does that, the thing that makes holy, that sanctifies, 
is the Holy Scriptures, inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's the holy thing above all holy things. And it doesn't matter if, we, if we're in a barn or a cave or out in the sticks or wherever. If we have the Lord's word and his name, then we are in a holy place and the holy God is with us in the midst of us. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful promise from our Lord. Let's keep reading here in Ezekiel chapter 41. We're picking up now at verse 13. Then he measured the temple a hundred cubits long and the yard and the building with its walls a hundred cubits long. Also the breadth of the east front of the temple and the yard a hundred cubits. Then he measured the length of the building facing the yard that was at the back and its galleries on either side a hundred cubits. The inside of the nave and the vestibules of the court, the thresholds and the narrow windows and the galleries all around the three of them opposite the threshold were paneled with wood all around from the floor up to the windows. Now the windows were covered to the space above the door, even to the inner room and on the outside and on all the walls all around inside and outside was a measured pattern. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Every cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. They were carved on the whole temple all around. From the floor to above the door, cherubim and palm trees were carved, similarly the wall of the nave. The doorposts of the nave were squared, and in front of the holy place was something resembling an altar of wood, three cubits high, two cubits long, and two cubits broad. Its corners, its base, and its walls were of wood. He said to me, This is the table that is before the Lord. The nave and the holy place had each a double door. The double doors had two leaves apiece, two swinging leaves for each door. And on the doors of the nave were carved cherubim and palm trees, such as were carved on the walls. And there was a canopy of wood in front of the vestibule outside. And there were narrow windows and palm trees on either side, on the side walls of the vestibule, the side chambers of the temple and the canopies. That takes us through the end of chapter 41. Wow, Pastor Wolf Miller, wow there's wild. so much here. There's there's lots of measurements again, a lot of yep. hundred cubits. It, I mean, do you want to comment on, on the number 100 or the measurements here? I don't know. I don't, but I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts. I'm always trying to resist. I mean, I just want to say the reason why it was 100 cubits long is because that's how long it was. That's how long it was. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I, you, but there's a temptation to go into the numerology of the whole deal. So, you know, you have 100 long and 100 wide. And so you have a, so you have the, the this kind of expansiveness of the place and you can start to, but I, I don't know. I, I, what, what are your thoughts? Well, there, there, I mean, there's probably a wisdom in in not saying too much and and 100 cubits because that's what it was i think that makes sense uh, there is something too i i think the 100 being a complete number a nice round number the the completion the perfection of this place but to i'm i'm hesitant to go much farther than that with you know maybe 10 squared or, or we could do all kinds of math i suppose but i think maybe a, a little more restraint in some of that is is probably wise my 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 own mind is drawn more to the decorations that are mentioned yeah, here. Yeah, you have these. It's a, it's a pattern. It's almost like um, uh, like a, a wallpaper pattern where you have a palm tree and then you an angel, a palm tree and an angel. The angel is called cherub and it has two faces, a man and a lion, which is amazing, and it surrounds the whole space all over the inside. Is this 
carving repeated over and over. In the original ta tabernacle, there was a cherub there, uh, two facing each other, and then two on the curtain. But now that's, this is expansive. So the whole host of heaven is pictured here. I think that the reason why there is these four cherub, both in the tabernacle and the temple, is because there are these four living creatures that that surround the throne of God and fly around the throne of God. So we see them in Daniel and Ezekiel, and we hear them especially and see them in Isaiah and then in Revelation. And we know their song. We sing it every Sunday. Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And the, 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 the beams of the lentils shake at the sound of their, of their singing. And it seems like if we take this picture of these four living creatures, uh, sometimes we just, they each have a different face. So the face of a man, an eagle, an ox, and a lion. Sometimes we see that each one of them has four faces. So you got to imagine like looking this direction is a man, and then you have a lion face, and then an ox face, and an eagle face. So it's kind of four faces. And, uh, and so that seems like, the reality of these of these four living creatures that are there, and now they're multiplied. We only see two of their faces in this carving, the man face and the lion face. Now, I think, I like to think about these living creatures as much as I can because the description of them with their six wings and, and their wings covered in eyes, and with two they fly, with two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet. These sound absolutely frightful to us i mean there's hardly any way to imagine them as as beautiful and yet when we close our eyes to sleep the sleep of death and open our eyes to see the glory of jesus and behold these four living creatures i think we will be stunned at their glory and their beauty how that is i do not know but it surely must be that these angels are the height of the Lord's creation. And so we have the angels there, and then we have the tree, the palm tree. Is that your translation, palm tree? Um, that's what the Jeremy. ESV reads, is yeah. the palm tree. The palm tree there, I, that's a, I guess it's as good as any um, uh, translation there. It's uh, the, um, it's, it's, so you have a, uh, an angel, and then you have a tree, and so it's this it's this garden, this picture of the garden and the glory of God kind of combined with one another, heaven and earth, reflecting or, or, or kind of interspersed and intertwined. And that's probably as close as we can get to the whole kind of theological point of this new temple is that is that in the resurrection, when the Lord's kingdom comes in its fullness, heaven and earth will be intertwined with one another in this way angel palm tree angel palm tree and that's that's what we have to look forward to it'll be it's just glorious beyond our imagining it with the you, the way you said that there the angel and the tree together i mean reminded me of the way you get in genesis 3 how the angel is placed to guard the way to the tree of life do, do you think there's like a, a return to eden type not an or, you know a new creation image going on here with the the heaven and earth being joined together and the 
I don't know. I'm, I'm maybe I'm thinking too much of the liturgy of the church here, but the you know the tree, the way to the tree of life is opened again now in Christ. I, I've got all kinds of images going in my mind right now. Maybe you can help me sort them out. Oh, I think so. That's nice because it also talks about the gates here, and and we see in this picture, I mean, a very similar description on if we look at First Kings six, a very similar picture of how King Solomon decorated the uh, inner or the maybe the outer walls of nope nope the inner walls of the of the sanctuary there too palm trees and cherubim uh, also he had flowers that were there um but this is um but i think that's right the uh when we get to the very last chapter of the whole book revelation 22 we find ourselves back walking with the lord in the garden and one of the key things for this particular temple is going to be in well i don't think we had it yet i think it's coming in the description uh, in the future chapters, is there's going to be a river flowing out of the midst of it. And that river flowing out of the midst of it, that's the river that makes glad the city of God, Psalm 46. That's the river of the Holy Spirit out of who flows out of the hearts of the believers, says Jesus in John chapter 7. That's the river that's flowing there in the garden in Revelation 21 and 22. And so there's this river that makes glad the city of God, and that's now flowing out of the temple. And... Um, and so this, that the Lord has taken us back to Eden is, is the whole point. He's, he's carrying us through all the troubles of this life to bring us to those joys of the life to come. The other feature that stands out in this part of Ezekiel is what is first in verse 21 said, and 22, something to be resembling an altar of wood. But then the tour guide tells Ezekiel, this is the table that's before the Lord. What What is this? Looks like an altar, but it's the table before the Lord. Yeah, I it as I I think it's the altar of incense. Hmm. Um, does it tell us here what it is? That this, this is just I I want to be careful here because that's just how I was imagining it. But now that you're asking me, I'm questioning my imagination. I was thinking of it like the altar of incense that sits right in front of the, um, uh, of the veil in both the tabernacle and the temple. And, and important that it was a veil because it could always be closed, but the incense could work its way through into the presence of God. And so I was thinking that this was the incense altar, which is a picture of the of the prayers of the saints. That's the, the thing that the incense altar is preaching, that the Lord delights in hearing our prayers. So just like incense is a is a delightful smell, so the Lord delights in, in hearing his people cry out to him in every need for all that uh, for all the, the troubles that we have in this body and life. Uh, I think that's what's going on, unless you have a different picture. Well, I mean, it, it, the way that, the, and again, I'm, I'm just going on the translation that the ESV has here, that it, it looks, it seems like Ezekiel sees this piece of furniture. It resembles to him an altar of wood. It's a little, which that's kind of strange for an altar to be made of wood, because on, generally you're going to burn things on an altar and and. Uh, if it's made of wood, it's going to burn up. But then the the tour guide in verse, this is at the end of verse 22, says to Ezekiel, this is the table that's before the Lord. So my mind went, rather than to the altar of incense, went to the table where the bread was placed there in the, the you know, the holy place of the tabernacle. Yeah, it could be. I think the table of showbread, mm, 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 
this is going to be an important. I, I'm so I'm just I'm scanning the commentaries here to see if if uh, I, this one says that this is the altar of incense, not the table of showbread. <laughs> um, um, but that's Jameson Fawcett Brown is going to indicate that. Um, I I wonder if we have to compare this. Yeesh. I wonder if we have to compare this to some of the other dimensions of some of the other places. So you, I, you can you can put that question on hold because it's going to come up again in chapter forty four sixteen. So I would I would peel back to this altar question when you get you'll have an expert on by then, and he can tell you. <laughs> well, Doctor Doctor Hummel in his commentary is it seems to to puzzle on this a little bit. You know, he. He, he says, I'm just looking at his commentary right now, in some respects, this verse seems to have been as puzzling to Ezekiel as it is to us. <laughs> so, so yeah, and then and then he suggests that the word indicates that the object was not really an altar, as usually understood, but the table perpetually set with the bread of the presence in the tabernacle in the temple. So apparently there's some, there's some disagreement even among the scholars on exactly what's being seen. Both of those the altar of incense and the table would have been in this part of the, the temple, the tabernacle. And so I, you can see why maybe both would, would be suggestions. Mm-hmm. Pastor Wolfmiller, we've got about two minutes here on the morning, lots of details here. Some of which, again, we're having trouble pinning down precisely what Ezekiel is seeing. Help us to see again, the big picture, yeah, sure. not only of this, but of the whole vision and how it points us to Christ. Yeah. Well, you, maybe just one little detail that would give us a hint at that because because here at the door, there's not a there's not a veil that separates the holy of holies, but a door that can be opened. Now there's a place where the one of the prophets was, the Lord was getting after the priests because they came in to light the candles and they left the door open, and they didn't even care. I can't remember if that's Joel or something. It says the wind blows. You go in to light the candles, but you don't even close the door to the temple. So the wind blows the candles out, and you don't even care. You're just doing it. Uh, the act itself doesn't matter to you. But here the door is there, and it's wonderful because the door means coming out and going in. It's not a constant covering like the veil, but that the Lord is now in and out with his people. And that's the key thing. When Jesus comes with us and, and stays with us to bless us and keep us according to his death and resurrection, then he is dwelling with us in a completely grace-filled, promise-filled, mercy-filled way so that we can delight in his presence, not be afraid of it, but delight in it. And this is our, this is our constant joy. So this, this temple in, that Ezekiel sees in a vision is really a picture of the, of the perfect dwelling of God with us, which is nothing other than, than the incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is pastor at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, helping us today with Ezekiel 41, verses 1 to 26. Pastor Wolfmuller, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Timothy. God be praised. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.